0: I trust you're already there, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to conclude our, our series that, that, uh, that Brother Brad has started on spiritual gifts. And, uh, and uh, I, I promise not to beat a dead horse. I know we've covered it. This makes it the fourth week. And uh, so there's, there's a lot that, that goes into it, I know. But we're going to be looking at this passage this morning together, and uh, it's my prayer that, that we'll grow from it. Stuart Briscoe tells the story of an astronaut bound for the moon who was interviewed by a reporter about all the details, especially regarding the potential hazards for traveling to the moon and back. The reporter asked, how will you eventually leave the moon once your mission is over? H- how does the module take off the return back to Earth? The astronaut answered, we will fire off silver rockets that powered the engine at our small module. The reporter asked, well, what if the engine won't fire up and it doesn't work? The astronaut said matter of fact, well, we're stuck on the moon. The reporter pressed and said, how long will you, your life support and oxygen systems last? The astronaut said six hours. The reporter said, may I ask you what you would do in the last six hours of your life? And the astronaut laughed and said, that's easy. We'll work on the engine. You know, that's great advice. What would you do if you knew life on planet Earth as you know know it was about to end? What would you do if you had six hours to live, six hours before the return of Christ, Hopefully, you, like the astronaut, would say, or continue to work on the engine. Do things you ought, you know you ought to be doing. The Apostle Peter here is reminding the church of this very thing. In verse 7, look what it says. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Just sit back and wait for it. Don't do anything. It's just, just keep going. No, he says, in essence, keep working on the engine keep doing the things that you know you ought to be doing. And look what he says. He says, be self-controlled sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You know, love, I believe, when we're talking about that of spiritual gifts, is really what knits and holds, the glue that holds everything together. If you'll look in the passages where it refers to spiritual gifts and what we have covered in the past couple of two or three weeks, uh, Romans chapter 12, Brother Brad preached from Romans one to verse eight. Well if you'll look past verse eight, nine and following, Paul speaks on that of love and the importance of love and how as important it is to make sure that we are loving one another, that we're being hospitable to one another. And then in verse, and then in chapter last week, he preached in chapter uh, 12 of 1 Corinthians. The whole chapter is dedicated that to spiritual gifts. What's the very next chapter in chapter 13? It's the chapter is known as the love chapter. Paul is saying, if I can do all these things, I have all these gifts, and I can do everything, but I don't have love, it profits nothing. It, it, it doesn't matter. It isn't, it's good for nothing. So I don't think it's a mistake at all that Peter would include this here. And referencing later, he would and referencing that of spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters. If we don't have love, our gifts don't mean anything. And so he is making it a point here: above all, above everything, love one another. Jesus says, "This is how you know you're my disciples: if you have love for one another." And that's what it says. Says, says, uh, since love covers a multitude of sin. What does Peter say in there? Is he condoning sin and overlooking sin? Not f- from Peter nor anywhere in the life of a New Testament church. We are told as Christians co- to condone sin or to ignore sin or to not discipline unrepentant sinners. What Peter is referring here is the attitude of grace. What Peter is wanting us to demonstrate as, as we wait for the coming Christ, it is a gracious spirit that avoids pettiness or pickiness. It avoids the activity of gossip that loves to broadcast the sins and shortcomings of others in the body. Peter wants us to avoid a hateful spirit that loves to point out the faults of others in order to stir up trouble. To put it in our own vernacular, the world out there is a dog-eat-dog dog world. Let's not bring that spirit in here. So Peter commands us to love fervently, and not only that. Look in verse nine: how show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The activity of, um, or that of showing hospitality. Was a necessity back, especially back in this time period of what Paul or what Peter is writing. In the first century, uh, there were very few inns, and most of them doubled as brothels. Inns were unsafe and, and undesirable. And as persecution mounted against the Christians, believers were being ostracized and even thrown out of their own homes. Keep in mind that the first 200 years there were no separate church buildings. Each local congregation met in homes of one of the more wealthier members. And hospitality, let's face it, sometimes can be inconvenient, it can be costly, especially in this time period of Peter is writing. It may drain resources. But Peter is saying, look, above all, have love and that should breed in and of itself that of hospitality. If, if brothers and sisters, Peter is saying here to these, these dear Christians, we need to be hospitable. The world is not going to take us in. The world does not want us. We need to love one another, look out for one another. That's what he's telling them here. and certainly apply to us as well. And then in verses 10 and 11 is where we're going to kind of park for the rest of the service and and look in dealing with spiritual gifts. And in verse 10, just look at three principled statements in verse 10. Uh, First, none of us have been left out of the picture concerning spiritual gifts. Look what it says. is each has received a gift. Every single one of us in here As Christians has received and been giving a gift to be used, to to edify one another, to serve one another, to help in the community, the world, and to bring glory to God. There's not one left out. I'm not going to belabor that point. We've talked about that for the past three or four weeks. Second, none of us decide what we're going to be good at. None of us get to decide what we're going to be good at as far as our spiritual gifts. And nothing about it a coincidence either. In fact, according to Scripture, God was developing you and preparing you and even crafting you before the day you were born. David writes in Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inward parts. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. David pictures... God, as a weaver's shuttle, choosing the thread and the colors and weaving away at us. In verse 14, I will give thanks to you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully, that is amazingly, wonderfully, uniquely. You're amazingly and uniquely made. Just how unique? Just look at your fingerprint. You're the only one on the planet with it or your DNA, which is uniquely yours. From your fingerprint to the color of your eyes and to the size of your nose and ears, all are designer-made. I understand our ears and nose continue to grow in old age, and that's exciting, you know. But from your ears to your nose, to the color of your hair, to the color of your eyes, we're all gods. Verse 15 of 139, Psalm 139. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The Hebrew term here refers to our frame as literally referring to our bony substance, our skeleton, our bone structure. In other words, God was involved in the development of your skeletal structure. Every ability, every disability, Woven into your life by the hand of God. Thousands of years before sonograms would would prove to show us the heating, the beating heart of a baby at nine weeks. Thousands of years before we would see a 3D image of an unborn baby sucking his thumbs or responding to sounds or even painful stimuli. Thousands of years before Before we would see a 3D, or thousands of years before medical technology would catch up to inspired scriptures and reveal that pre-born baby is emitting brainwaves nearly identical to adult brainwaves before the baby is even three months in the womb. David writes it this way, before your birth, God was at work in your life. Now, fast forward the tape. 60 years Peter is informed of us of something else that God has actually bestowed upon us individually our ability and gifts and talents as we have unique privilege and responsibility to develop and exercise and expand and advance our gifts for the glory of God that he has given us wouldn't it be amazing in reference to spiritual gifts and what God has given us If we had sign up sheets in the back In the lobby For Sunday school teachers We had waiting lists For Sunday school teachers For, for nursery workers a Waiting lists to get on Because it was so full of, 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 of people wanting to go on mission trips You say well that would be very unique that would be, that would be hard to believe But listen in the eyes and the mind of God That's normal That's just normal Christian behavior. None of us have been left out of the picture. None of us decide what we're good at or going to be good at. And thirdly, here, none of us get to keep our gifts to ourselves. As each receive the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're not owners of our gifts. we are stewards. A steward in Peter's day was a household servant who had been given the responsibility of managing things that didn't belong to him. Peter, in essence, is saying here, don't let your gift go to waste. If you can believe it, there was a first century pastor who was considering doing just that. Burying his talents, his abilities and his gifts on two occasions in fact paul writes two letters to timothy the apostle paul exhorts him to exercise his gifts first timothy four fourteen, paul says do not neglect the spiritual gift within you the word neglect refers to not caring for something a spiritual gift is to be cared for and exercised just like a muscle And what is really telling to me is that Paul uses the verb tense that informs us that Timothy is already neglecting his gift. He is already shying away from using the gift that God has given him. No doubt related to pastoring and teaching. We're not told what it looked like or why. or It could have been discouragement over ministering to the people. It might have been the rigors of preaching. It might have been the this depression over Paul's imprisonment or discouragement because of lack of fruit in his ministry in Ephesus. We're not specifically told. But you know, it's, it's kind of encouraging because we all now can identify with him in facing challenges and burdens and difficulties of exercising our own ministry gifts for the glory of Christ and then we get to verse 11 in verse 11 whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of god whoever serves as one's uh, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that god supplies Peter, in essence, is giving two categories of spiritual gifts, that of speaking and that of serving. And before we go any further, it's already been covered in the previous sermons, um, many of the gifts that are mentioned that Paul mentions in Scripture are actually our own responsibilities and duties as Christians. For example, Paul talks about the gift of evangelism. But as Christians, that is our duty and our responsibility as Christians, is to evangelize, is to tell others about Christ. So you can't, you can't say, I don't have the gift of changing diapers, so I'm not going to work in the nursery. I've tried that at home, and it don't work. That's me. So we, we can't say we don't have the gift of, of mercy or an encouragement, and as Christians, we're called to do that. What about Teaching. Think about it in this terms, the gift of teaching. We are all told that a mark of maturity in every believer is that we become teachers, Hebrews 5.12. In fact, the writer of Hebrews asked, are you all teaching by now? Every believer is a teacher, and a writer of Hebrews isn't thinking of formal teaching opportunities in the church. He's thinking of every believer taking those teaching opportunities that might be to one person or a co-worker or to a child that's asked a question about God or the Bible, and you can deliver to them a biblical answer. Guess what? You just became a teacher, a Bible teacher. Every believer is to mature and learn to communicate biblical truth through the world around them. Now, obviously, there are different positions. There are more... Um, what Peter may be referring to here is that of preachers or teachers, Sunday school teachers, missionaries, um, community group leaders taking God's word and expounding it in public setting. And even of I, I love how he even phrased this, because even those who take God's word and expound God's word and teach it and preach it, there's safety, there's security, there's accountability because it's not my words. It's not your words. It's God's words. It's his message, not mine. Because it says here, as the oracles of God, of, of what God has to say, what is his message? There's safety in that. There's also safety when it comes to that of, of serving. Because serving can be hard work. can get tiresome beauty of it is that we're not doing it in our own or we shouldn't be doing it in our own strength and this is what he's saying here we're relying on the strength of God in this verse sometimes we can look at service gifts and think that it may not be as significant as speaking gifts it often goes unnoticed it's often often behind the scenes you don't have to be visible to be vital in the body of Christ Yes, speaking gifts proclaim Christ, but service gifts portray Christ. Speaking gifts explain truth, but service gifts apply truth. Service or speaking gifts tend to go tend to get the attention while serving gifts go unnoticed. But just keep in mind that speaking gifts are the mouthpiece, but serving gifts are the muscle. And in a sense, the body has more muscles than mouths. Not surprisingly, the predominant gift of the spirit in the church happens to be the category of serving gifts. I think um, a lot of Christians and churches view uh, the church in a business term sometimes. It's like climbing the corporate ladder, so to speak, in reference to spiritual gifts and serving in the church. Well, if we do this, if we do this just right, then maybe we'll get here, or we'll get promoted to this. Or if I can do this, then we'll get here, and then maybe one day we'll get there. But there is no promotion into the church. There are only placements in the church by the Holy Spirit. I came across an article recently of a renowned German orchestra that was steeped in division. Evidently, the violinists were suing for a pay raise, claiming they played more—they played many more notes per concert than their colleagues did. The sixteen violinists declared how much more important this made them to the orchestra, and obviously more important, they said, than the less busy colleagues in the other or- in the orchestra. Their lawsuit didn't work out, but you can only imagine the damage. That calls to that orchestra, beloved. The church is like an orchestra, and that every person plays their part, long or short, loud or soft. In an orchestra and in the church, everyone plays a role, and that there is no absolutely no room for people who keep track of how many notes. Say here that in all of that, God supplies us the strength in serving. It's God who gives us the ability to do the serving, to exercise our gifts. the The word here for supplies is the Greek word chorege. It's where we get our word choreograph from. And here's the implication: God is doing. All the, all the choreographing. He, he is arranging all the parts, and he is supplying all the strength that you need to play the role that he's designed and equipped uniquely for you to do and to perform. And so we can look at all of this and say, well, you know, I, I'm pretty busy. I don't know my schedule. I mean, why bother? There's a lot going on. Peter anticipates that question. He anticipates that question, and look what he says. Why do we do what we do? Well, for the glory of God. We do it for His glory, and not our own. One author, one author wrote it this way. There are two great moments in a person's life. The moment you were born, and the moment you realize why? Here it is, to bring God glory. That is our purpose, that is our goal, that is to be our desire. And yes, using our gifts is a gift from God. He has gifted every single one of us to do it, to serve one another, to be a light in the community and the, the world that we live in but not to lose focus and to lose sight on why we do it. We do it for His glory, to bring glory to Him, that His name would be made great among the nations, among the people, and that people could see it and be drawn to Him. That's why we do it. It was a hot day, the 19th of May, 1967. Charles Plum was a navy pilot flying in an F4 Phantom he just got launched off the US Kitty Hawk over North Vietnam and all of a sudden in the corner of his eye he saw a white plume of smoke and immediately he was hit his his plane was immediately the jet was immediately going down to the earth quick rate of speed he didn't have a lot of time to react, and he hit the eject button. And at eighteen gs—that's eighteen times the force of gravity—enough to tear off arms and legs that weren't held tightly to the one's body. He was shot out of the out of the jet, and it seemed like an eternity while he was up in the air. And immediately he heard <laughs> the sound of a of a parachute opening. As he made his way down to the ground to safety, he was met by farmers who hit him in the head with shovels and hoes and he was eventually captured and made a POW. And for six years he spent a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. And after 2,103 days in captivity, Charles Plum was set free back to the U.S. That was not the not the end of the story. One day, Charlie and his wife was having dinner in Kansas City at a restaurant, and Charlie noticed a man at another table looking at him intently, staring at him. and Charlie couldn't think, "Why is this guy looking at me like that? like he knows me or something?" And not long after that, the guy got up and came over to Charlie's table to where they were eating and said, you're Charles Plum, sir. Charlie said, yes, trying to think who this man was. How did he know him? Then he continued, you flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk, sir. You were shot down. You spent six years in POW in Vietnam, sir. How in the world did you know that? Charlie asked. The man replied, I packed your parachute. Wow, Charlie was taken back, and the man immediately took out his arm and his hand to shake him, and he shook his hand. And he said, "I guess it worked." Charlie assured him, oh, "It sure did. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for that, for you. Thank you so much." And they began to reminisce on their service and many years ago. And and Charlie went back to his room that night. And couldn't sleep, he was tossing and turning, Charlie said, I I kept wondering what he had looked like in his Navy uniform, a white cap, bib in the back, bell-bottom trousers, I wonder how many times he had passed me and said good morning, or said hi, how are you, and I just ignored him and turned and walked the other way, because I was a fire pilot, he was just a sailor. Charlie thought of how many hours the sailor had spent on the long wooden table in the bows of the ship, carefully weaving the shrouds and folding the silks to his chute, holding in his hands each time the fate of someone he didn't know, with the understanding that most likely the parachute would never be used, yet there was always a chance. Charlie would go on to say that this moment really changed his outlook on life. In a very spiritual sense, most of us in here, I dare say, could say, maybe look back and think of someone who packed our chute, who God used their abilities and their gifts in our life to show us encouragement, mercy, evangelism, Teaching to help mold and make us to the person that we are today. And I think it really begs the question with us whose parachute are we packing? Whose life are we investing? Who are we praying for? Who are we encouraging, showing mercy? evangelizing, discipling, teaching? Who is it that we are are giving our life to see them grow, to see them come to Christ? It's, It's our desire that as a church, that that would be on each and every one of our hearts, that we would do that. That we would love to see, and, and we would do that not out of duty and out of responsibility, but out of but out of devotion because we love God and we want to see people come to Christ. We want to see people grow and we want as a body of Christ to be united and to grow and love one another and grow together as a church. And all and keeping in mind and all for the glory of God, that he would be glorified.